Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Your oh, judo ass gonna, wasn't I, the I, only look, thing no, leaking shit. That I, no, I can't your say. mouth too. Who's your mouth too? You were also leaking shit out of your doo doo mouth. I don't even have like my notes up yet. No, I mean that's. I haven't even opened my drink. Let me open my drink. Big L. Oh, well, that's why I opened drink? it. Me too. What are you have drinking, a, Aaron? Oh. Sparkling black tea with peach Gosh. juice. Ooh. Ooh, we both got peach things. I have a royal peach sour ale from Prize. Harry, did that's you bring this bad. one over? Yeah, that's I think out. so. Uh, no, yeah. actually, I didn't, but um, I've had it, and it's good. It smells very oh, good. Oh, nice. I also got a peach thing. I'm grabbing my butt. <laughs> <laughs> actually, unfortunately, 90% of, uh, of the uh, America's peaches were lost this year. Um, crop issues. Sorry. Really? I I, be, I believe like 90% of domestic peach production was was killed this year. Really? Dang. So you're drinking so a beer that's that worth like $3,000 right now, technically. Yeah. Ah, cha-ching. The most it's expensive. I just, I just got a quest from somebody in a video game to go retrieve that one can. Uh, <laughs> is You know what just I mean? A, a, a red diamond appeared above my head in your view. Finally, I can <laughs> die after tasting it one more time. <laughs> Oh, okay. oh, it's video game reference. So, Cody, uh, I see, I see. Yeah, that's yeah. so I, Let's, I uh, We always just, comment on this, and it's not great for the listeners. Go ahead and cut all that shit out, huh? <laughs> not <laughs> just, on your fucking Sometimes life. the, sometimes Maybe the, the worst surprise soft episode open start works, of all time. and sometimes it doesn't work, <laughs> yeah. and I think Jason should cut all this out. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so, but nope. apologies if Do you keep experience it any technical issues. I'm trying to get my double monitor set up. Oh We're sure, yeah. Great. This is yeah. this is Fantastic what the right time. fucking podcast. It, it failed in the middle of the podcast. Okay, this wasn't a choice. This is a, a coping mechanism. You just cut out the first two minutes. We're fine. We'll just we'll just you know we'll do a clean break. How Why would that? we do that? It, it, it's like it's like serving yourself on a plate of food. Yeah, and professionalism, and quality of the product. Create a, yeah, a product um, that our listeners want to listen to. Something <laughs> like that. A product. <laughs> product. What are we making? Content? And no, that's what three Aaron things said. we don't have. This is dead. Thank you so much for listening to Trilove. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can check us out on Twitter at Trilove Podcast, and you can follow the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. You'll find the showings calendar there and a bunch of cool series coming up at the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis. I'm one of a surprising number of people without purpose, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Luckily for us, this recording is going to stop right at 12. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Blue Sky at Cody Narvison. Times have changed, and we've often rewound the clock since the Puritans got a shock when they landed on Hanging Rock. If today, any shock they should try to stem, instead of landing on Hanging Rock, Hanging Rock would land on them. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, Punish Take. I still do it every time. I'm still. still I'm just it. gonna keep doing it. Time to go back yeah. to the old me. Uh, my name is Aaron. I don't. I don't have a quote. For, all the I looked up all the quotes, and they were all like, you know, super serious. Like I should have thought of something like Harry's. You know, I, I thought like, oh, is there some sort you of? You could have just said, I, I am intact. 
It would have been funny. I it's not. See that I don't like the I like the you know, I like the there's a little bit of spice, a little bit of humor. I don't like the just the direct. So anyway, look, I don't have one. I apologize. Maybe put some uh pan flutes maybe over this year. That's um, sure. Yeah, just a super cut of all of Peter Weir's pan flutes in every single one of his movies inexplicably. Yeah. I don't know what Peter Weir has to do with what we're talking about because it hasn't been introduced yet. But uh, I if you would I like think to we find can say me, the director. <laughs> oh, that's true. I guess I don't know. Yeah, we've been saying that. This actually, that. this is, I believe, the final in a series of films by Peter Weir, Australian director Peter Weir, Sorry. that played at the trial line in 20, uh, September of 2023 alongside Mace Adderling. You can check out both of those movies uh, series on the calendar. I believe you can go back, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Trial line is. Um, and apologies to, to lesser-known female director, my Setterling, did not record on a single one of her films this time around. Hey, we did Kudio Tanaka. We have our one female director of the year. My, uh, my Iron Fist came down, and I said, witness, and then it just went from there. We just sort okay. of followed the bit from there. Also, uh, was Kudio Tanaka, that wasn't even this year. That was last year, wasn't it? I want to so, say it was last year, yeah. I don't know and, that we've done any female directors. Don't quote me on that, because maybe we have. I don't remember. Uh, anyway, anyway sorry, find, yeah, sorry, my we sir, were doing Peter sir, Weird. Do a do a quick search of our backlog of episodes wherever you listen to podcasts for the word woman or woman, and uh, and tell us how many you get back. Uh, but before you do that, listen to Aaron give uh, his patented Aaron Grossman summary, telling us about what this movie is. Yep, talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock, nineteen seventy five film directed by Peter Weir, uh, based on the novel of the same name by Joan. Lindsay, uh, Lindsay, it's got the Lindsay with the S A Y at the end. Always kind of throws me off. Just Lindsay. Lindsay I would you could you could do it in yes. an Australian accent and just make it fun. Nope, good on Lindsay. that. Thank you for the suggestion, though, Jason. Uh, the events of the film surround a uh, natural natural geographic formation nowadays often called Hanging Rock. Uh, although, uh, be upfront and say uh, it's often referred to by different names by different people, uh, including uh, Aboriginal groups that uh, knew about the formation before European settlers came over to Australia and uh, started fucking shit up. Uh, Wikipedia references an old uh, film blog from an Aboriginal film producer, Jason Tamiru, who appears to still be active in Australia and I think Melbourne specifically. Um, he says that uh, the proper name is uh, Naganalong. Um, so that, that's also referenced on Wikipedia as well. Um, it's possible that the geological formation was kind of known as many different names to, to many different groups uh, in the area. Uh, fun fact, it is a mammalon. I did not know what this was, but it is a rock formation created by eruption of relatively thick or stiff lava through a narrow vent in the bedrock. Because the lava is not fluid, um, it does not flow away. Instead, it kind of congeals around the vent, forming a small hill or mound on the surface. Now you know about mammalons. Um, the film itself concerns a picnic that several girls from Appleyard College, uh, which is a girls' school in Victoria, Australia, uh, in the film, um, they take this uh, picnic to the local formation that they call Hanging Rock. Um, at the rock, a, a number of odd events occur, and three girls, uh, as well as their mathematics teacher, disappear without a trace. Um, the rest of the film kind of largely concerns the various reactions to the disappearance, as well as various efforts to find the missing women. Um, film is uh, generally regarded as kind of a high point, a masterpiece of Australian new wave cinema. Um, and it's gone on to be uh, very just kind of generally influential on a number of other films and filmmaking styles and filmmakers uh, specifically. So the film is also, uh, uh, as previously mentioned, known for its very striking music, uh, with much of the score being taken from uh, traditional Romanian panpipe music. 
So yeah, I'm sure Jason will play some of that eventually during this episode. Not in real time, Maybe. but yeah, you'll, you'll hear it, listener, uh, over the course of the episode. Um, I am glad you brought up sort of its provenance and influence because it's one of the things that Cody, I'm going to throw you under the bus real quick. You mentioned in your review of it sometime back at your first or second watch of this movie, I forget, uh, is that you happened to notice like you couldn't get it out of your head how much this movie seemed to have influenced just about everything you've seen since like 1975. Um, what, uh, What did you mean by that? What did you pick up on? What sort of threads did you see this movie weaving that sort of showed up again in movies you watch and like? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, a, a big reason for that is I watched this movie for my first and only other time back in whatever it was, 2020 or 2021. Uh, and since then, during COVID times, I've seen like whatever it is, like 3000 movies uh, a year and really beefed up my, uh, um, you know, my backlog of, uh, of uh, becoming more well viewed, not well read. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think just in the moment, I felt a lot of uh, cross sections of, of things that I typically tend to gravitate toward. And I think especially during that point in time, really coming away from this feeling that it is, um, indicting of, of certain, um, structures and, uh, societal tendencies, uh, all while doing so in a very kind of touch and go, there's a certain like visual whimsy to all of this. It's fantastical. It's very, um, eerie. There is something that is definitely simmering at the heart of this movie. And all of those are elements that, um, I really like kind of getting thrown in, in the pot together. I think the first time I watched this, I gravitated a lot or gravitated a lot towards, um, yeah, what this movie was, uh, I think attempting to communicate or put forth about, um, those, uh, those types of things, those types of structures, and um, really feeling good about the ways in which uh, it, Picnic at Hanging Rock is a very like pessim- a pessimistic, a very um, bleak uh, movie. It, you know, having the the last sort of hour and a half be kind of the resulting fallout of you know how people are reacting to this particular occurrence. I think this time around, um, I guess I should say. Loved this movie upon first watch. I still love this movie. And I think I, I came away with it, um, kind of a couple new wrinkles, thinking more and more about not just the the students who got um, kind of whisked away uh, in this disappearance, but also the teacher uh, that got um, got caught up in all this as well. The, the teacher who disappeared and kind of what that means upon, you know, the, the tapestry that this, uh, that this movie is setting up. Um, that's something I'm still kind of uh, working through. But then also... You know, thinking about the ways in which you know these uh, girls that went missing, how th- there's you know, uh, not to throw out terms of, of like I like idealistic or progressive, they're clearly individuals who were feeling restless and wanted something more. Um, and the fact that you know they they do disappear, there is uh, again a certain bleakness to that. At the same time, coming around watching this again and just seeing how all of these. Uh, sorts of uh, structures and just behaviors that uh, the people in these sort of neighboring towns are putting forth, just like how how unstable all of those things are. Um, just all all it takes is for uh, you know an occurrence like this. You're asking questions. There are so many uncertainties, um, and eventually the you know the world kind of gravitates back towards the the status quo. So I don't know. There's there's a lot of weird um, uh, things uh, at, at odds with each other, like weirded in a good way, um, and in a classic sort of Peter Weir flavor i think i can come around and appreciate what um you know the ways in which those are sort of interwoven together so i don't know i very completely did not directly answer your question jason i just kind of did my own thing but those are the sorts of things that i'm still kicking around and i'm excited to to hear what other folks think about that and hopefully um you know i'll I'll come to 
love this movie even more. Yeah, one of the things I think uh, talking about, I guess you get specific, but when I think about this movie, I think about and having just seen it for the first time, literally finishing it today. Um, I am struck by how like delicate a balance it is in with itself. There, like you can broadly consider it a movie about like two halves. Those two, like like you were saying, the um the, the like very high society uh, sort of controlled sort of uh, uh, processed and versus like indigenous life, nature, culture, etc. Um, like broadly about conformity and natural expression. Uh, it it brings out like. I think it's just because it is that open because it leans leans so heavily on those on that dichotomy that it does like it ha it lends itself very well to influence to um sort of an interpretation you see it as sort of a pessimistic or bleak take i see it as more on the whimsy side i see it more as like a um a knowing poking like some culpability uh i, I believe i read something i want to say that i've got the piece still up maybe about the original author uh, of the novel upon which this is based. Um, it, how would you pronounce that last name again, Aaron? Was it uh, Joan? Come on. Lindsay. Joan Lin of Joan course Lindsay. it's Lindsay. What are you talking about? Uh, Who like, would ever mispronounce something like that? Um, that she might have, I, I, and I don't know her. I haven't read the, uh, I don't know her work. I haven't read the novel, um, but that she like specifically wanted to lean into and was incited by the sort of like, uh, the the colonialism the colonialism angle from uh, you know Great Britain extending its influence and sort of like uh, settling and uh, colonizing um, Aboriginal land in Australia and New Zealand uh, like she wanted to bring it back to that like basic a dichotomy and I think this movie goes to some really interesting places to explore that to like it goes from that broadest concept and applies that dichotomy that um, uh, you know juxtaposition to sex class uh again uh colonialism um uh, some element of gender as well uh it like it is it is not content to just say uh can i reference a movie i've never seen before barry linden is it is that just a lampooning of the bourgeoisie is that as i've seen okay nah. never mind. then i can't say that but like it, it doesn't it, it's not content to just say look at the goofy bourgeoisie look at like their um you know teacup uh, fantastical world and how easily it chips and cracks it like uses that basic framing to do to comment on so much more i think uh and that is why i find it interesting that you've i i did too start to see threads of influence from this movie to a lot of other movies that like seem to try to do the same thing is this doesn't indulge in it too much. It's not like trying to repeat and beat that message too cleanly and clearly all of the time. Rather it finds different ways to like spread that message through different lenses of, like I said, uh, it's got obviously the very broad class implications. Um, there's a lot of like queer reading you could pull into this movie. Uh, it just seems to have a lot of different facets in a fairly tight package. Um, and yet is still like very elusive. It's obviously incredibly mysterious. Everybody talks about how like it's dreamlike and ghostly and whatnot. Uh, formally, there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about narratively. There's a lot of some fun stuff to talk about. Uh, and I'll head it over to Harry to get us kicked off. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the facets. This was my first time watching this movie, and I was surprised, um, first of all, by how um, much more than a central metaphor this movie was. I mean, I, I think that um, based on sort of like what I was familiar with, I almost thought this was going to be an even more dreamlike and ephemeral movie than it ended up being. Not that it's not that, but um, 
I was surprised at how much it's sort of a mystery and sort of a thriller also, and it's legitimately concerned with materiality and sort of like what it what it means for the people who are left behind and, and how they try to reckon with that. Um, and maybe because of that, um, I found the metaphor a lot more nuanced and multifaceted than um, I had maybe given given it credit for. I had sort of thought I was going into a Australian new wave feminist movie. Um, it certainly has undercurrents of that, but as you pointed out, Jason, it it explores the intersections of puritanism basically or, or at least like a puritanical culture and sexism with uh, colonialism and imperialism. Um, with gender dynamics and um, inequalities. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of sex stuff about virginity and coming of age and um, learning uh, something about yourself or, or what it means to grow up, what it means to change as a person here as well. The forces that maybe do and don't want us to do those things, the forces that want to control how that development happens or whether that development happens and why they want to control those things, maybe for their own purposes rather than just your purposes. I thought it was really interesting how this movie unpacks what we require from one another, uh, particularly as explored through, of course, um, the uh, Mrs. Appleyard, but also um, Sarah and also um, the British guy. I think all of these people are very desperate to prove something about themselves through each other and through the progression of each other through this movie in a way that is fascinating. And it's really interesting to juxtapose that with the people who don't seem to need anything from anybody else, AKA the women who literally disappear off the face of the planet. Um, I agree with you formally. I think that this movie is so accomplished in how it, um, seeds its motifs and its metaphors um where like it it felt so completely realized and confident to me at all times i mean there were parts of this that felt like a bergman movie in terms of just how like arresting uh the imagery was the use of color i'm thinking of like obviously all the shots of the girls just sort of splayed out on the rocks there's a shot near the end where uh the girl who returns spoiler is in red and all the girls around her are in white and they're all just staring at her and there's a um there's physical boundaries between um them and her it's just like really great elemental filmmaking um and it it all sort of works really really masterfully toward this this thing that I'm starting to think of is maybe a hallmark of Peter Weir, and it's a little bit half-baked for me right now, but I'm really interested in how he explores the ways in which um, these sort of like social constructs and social inequities, um, they sort of like line up with or um, – sort of like our intention with these sort of natural experiences of being human. Um, I think this is something that the Mosquito Coast tried to get at, that um, your mileage may vary. It didn't super work for me, right? Because I think that um, in in sort of like talking about the great sort of human tragedy of Mosquito Coast, I think he ends up undermining the social critique a little bit. Here, I felt like they worked really, really well together. Um, like I felt... I felt so much for the people who were left behind and the answers that they didn't get and what that meant to them about who they were and sort of their existential journey in understanding themselves in the world. And I think it could do all of that and sort of like make that metaphor stand for something so much broader um, while still 
having a really pointed critiquing things to say about how this happened and why it's affecting the people it's affecting. So it can kind of point the finger and sort of like do that sweeping human tragedy thing um, that I was really impressed with. So I can definitely see why this was so influential. And um, I was, uh, I was surprised how sort of riveted I was by it, right? Because you kind of don't think that it's necessarily going to do that, especially if, like me, you've had this spoiled and so you know, right? Like, I think pretty much the thing everybody knows about this movie, even if you don't know anything about this movie, is, like, the girls aren't going to be found and you're never going to find out what happened to them, right? And so, like, I'm coming into it with, like, this idea that, like, okay, so that's true, so this is going to be sort of, like, this, this like, very distant, almost sort of, like, alien, ephemeral, dreamlike mystery, right? Um, and it is all of those things, but it's also... Uh, grounded in a lot of ways that I didn't expect and angry in a lot of ways I, I enjoyed and didn't expect. Yeah. It, I think it, one of the ways it gets there is with like it, the, you brought up uh, the relationship of Mrs. Appleyard, the school marm, the uh, headmistress, I guess, to Sarah, who is an orphan. She, or uh, says she's an orphan. She has no money. She is uh, bound, destined to be kicked out. She's kept from all of the um, uh, all the field trips. She actually isn't allowed to go to Hanging Rock. Uh, she has p- p- very like not very subtly queer tendencies toward one of the main characters. Is oh, she is the character I would define as explicitly queer? Right, like yes. maybe the only one, but you could um, argue that. Right. And some of the action that uh, is taken against her, some of the punitive measures, some of the more corrective measures you see, you it's hard not to read as like there's a, an insistence on heteronormative conformity uh, on the part of the school uh, uh, headmistress. I keep saying school, Marm. I feel like that's a British term that I don't hear in, in American English. But I've never I heard keep... anybody say that ever in my life. So Wow. Uh, maybe it's a homeschool thing. Um, but I really liked what you said about uh, how you brought up. He was just mispronouncing mom all these years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me, Marmy. Um, the relationship of Mrs. Appleyard, the the headmistress to Sarah, as Sarah is built to give maybe a little bit of, I won't say to the entirety of the school group, but a little bit of dimensionality to that kind of person, I guess, that um, even Mrs. Appleyard sees these kids mostly as paychecks. She sees the uh, school as a business. She talks mostly about the financial impact and reputational impact of the girls going missing when they do. Uh, she talks about how kids are resigning and their parents are pulling them out. And that means that they're not going to be able to continue their work there, um, which is, of course, a material reality, but also like she stops somebody from mourning about the uh, about the loss of these kids to talk about the business impact. So that that's again not so subtly heinous. Um, but then Sarah, as a, I won't say that she's a counter to that, but she sort of deepens that um, lens that we have to this to this uh, to this world to this space because she has not the same. Um, upbringing, not the same perspective. She uh, doesn't want to or can't uh, memorize the same poems that everybody's being asked to. She's uh, chained to a board to try to correct her posture. She's kept home from all the field trips because she's not allowed to be rewarded those things for you know her insolence or disobediency or whatever. Um, and I really like, I'm glad you brought that up because I think in that there's a complication of that main two halves broadly that I was talking about. That dichotomy is in that character because she is treated differently from the rest of the group. She is, uh, you know, again, she's repressed from in a way that a lot of the characters aren't in a war in a in a situation where these kids are 
generally pretty repressed. They're pretty like expected to conform. Some of them are just better at it. And the ones who are better at it are the ones who are actually like most doomed. Maybe we don't see anybody else have like severe, sincere conflicts with start with power, excuse me, uh, authority structures or with the headmistress or with generally anything in their lives, except this like, uh, uh, surreptitious, um, uh, sensual design, like draw to hanging rock and to the history, to the like uh, animality of it, to the, um, quote unquote, like the, the, the mystery of it. Um, I just find it interesting that her motivation is sort of like necessary, not her motivation, but her characterization is necessarily like fed through the headmistress in a way that the other characters kind of aren't, or maybe they aren't given the chance to by intent or otherwise. Um, I don't really know where I want to go with that point, but I just thought it was like, because Harry brought it up a worthwhile uh, point to bring up about like the fact that this character is built sort of in a silo of, except outside the other characters. Um, there is a, an, an allusion to Bertie, the one of the British Cockney kids, the um, fucking, I'm forgetting the name of the little freak of the year. Uh, uh, he was in immortals <laughs> or whatever that was. Uh, there's Banshees a there's a Sheeran. michael and there's an albert oh i'm saying like it, it, also, in damn if i know which one is which. Oh, barry keegan <laughs> barry keegan there we go thank you uh it, yeah the slightly yeah, michael, nicer one it, or the which, which michael's the nicer one albert albert the brunette the one who's a little more i'm saying barry yeah. keegan would be that yeah <laughs> and sure. then barry keegan yeah. rounding out the threesome thank you okay um, I'll say that just like in general, I think that there is a, and you kind of referenced this in the group chat a bit, but there is kind of a, a difference in style or tone in regard to how the film kind of approaches, um, you know, the, the scenes of this kind of picnic um, at Hanging Rock and then kind of that juxtaposed with the, you know, the scenes at this kind of women's, um, you know, school in, in kind of just a, a little distance away, you know, short carriage ride away or whatnot. Um, there's there's a way that like the sh the scenes are kind of shot differently. How often you hear those kind of pan flutes start playing, right? Um, uh, one of the big kind of uh, ways that they they gave this film or certain scenes of this film kind of this um, ethereal kind of look to it was by putting I believe like bridal veils or like cloth over the camera, um, which kind of oh, gave really? it this sort of yeah, it gave it this sort of like hazy feel to it that I think you can if you go back you're like oh yeah that pretty obvious um i like how this film looks right but i think there's like a difference also in the way kind of like the concrete nature of the um uh, uh you know the the plot at that school versus the general lack of of like explanation or like understanding around the events um at hanging rock specifically that i think kind of really helps those ethereal moments work. And that I, I think that like, there are pretty obvious like political themes you can draw from, you know, a, a bunch of women essentially kind of disappearing off into nature and, and just kind of not being seen anymore. Right. I think that there are moments in that, that, that have like pretty strong, like, you know, a pretty strong political reading. I think the fact they take off their like socks and stockings, right. As this like kind of rejection of the, uh, uh, kind of, I don't know, conformity or the the. They're kind all of wearing standards. virginal white, right? And then when one yes. of them comes back, she's dressed in red. And and they they were beforehand, right? But then they 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 loosen the elements of that that are are kind of um, um restrictive, you might say. Um, and I think that there is like a lot of little stuff like that that like I think you can kind of read into. But I think the film 
also like largely works from that standpoint because it in like very subtle ways like kind of resists any sort of very strict reading and like resists any sort of coherent reading for like each and every character right like why does does one girl return uh but the others don't right why is uh, the math teacher uh the one that kind of you know uh helps uh, or this like seen disappearing with these girls i think that there are like little explanations that you can kind of assign to each of those plot points based on your reading of the film right uh, i think that the math teacher specifically is someone that is like a little more in tune to like the I don't know, cosmic scope of the world. And she like, also, Mrs. She Appleyard down. is uh, in love with her. Uh, you could read into that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, that's not, yeah, I, not a bad point. Um, so I, I, but I think that like, there are like ways that you can kind of like interpret all of these things, but like a lot of it feels like kind of slippery or like, it feels like it's like, if you attempt to pin it down, very too purposefully. Much, it kind of, like, so runs yeah, through your I fingers agree. in a way that I find very interesting, but that is like the exact opposite of how I feel when we return to uh, pretty much all of the other characters in the film, right? Where I think that their motivations and their intentions are so grounded in class politics, in gender politics, in like the, this kind of environment of, uh, you know, the, the settlers in Australia that I think like that juxtaposition is the thing that kind of like gives the film its like very weird kind of feeling that I think helps this film like persist in the manner that it has, I, I would say. No, I totally agree with that. The, that's a huge reason why I feel like I've, I've thought about this movie a lot since uh, the first time seeing it. And I think one of the threads that kind of uh, strengthens emboldens the other aspect, the other sort of ABC plots uh, of this movie, going back to little freak candidate uh i think the actor's name is dominic guard who plays michael the sort of um not like in practice alpha of the two between him and albert but we see more of him there's kind of like the middle ish act of the movie where it's um it, it's this it's this kid he's i mean he looks like a kid for all i know he could be like mid to late 20s i don't actually know <laughs> um sorry dominic guard um but uh this this uh this kid this i'm gonna keep calling him a kid this kid michael the the first interaction that he and albert have with um with this group of uh of girls at this you know at hanging rock uh, a sequence very much grounded in male gazy type um, cinematography um, and sequencing just the, the two of them ogling uh, uh ogling these women and you albert i think especially making you vocalize comments of michael being like hey uh stop saying that and i think albert says something to the effect of you're just thinking these crude things uh, this 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 feeling that's um being very like it's being verbalized and, and literalized so much and then i don't know how to characterize it other than just like they're capability specifically michael's capability to like no longer like employ that male gaze upon this group because they vanish right they're gone they're gone from the earth it just it, michael spending the middle portion of this film like it, it is a search for understanding that feels ignited by it's like this ghost of some youthful yearning there's that very like portrait of a, a lady on fire type of shot where he sees um, oh wow, um, that is totally so sorry, but, a portrait of a lady on fire shot. That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I, I think it's it's Miranda, right? That he sees like that sort of mirage of her. Um, so that's uh, those, and it's not like a very it, it is a, a very <laughs> a very little freak type of performance. It's not 
it, it's not uh, a very um, like vivacious sort of performance. It's it's not. I, I don't want to say like it's. There's not a lot to it because there definitely is. There's a lot of physicality to it. There's a lot of you know re- reading the sort of nuanced uh, like stoicisms of his face. Um, just I, I really felt myself latching onto that at this point around. And again, it's not to say that the if we want to typify it as like the male arc uh, or the Michael Little Freak arc of the movie, um, it's certainly not like the most important, but it is valuable it, it under you know as so much of the latter acts of the film are because the um, if you want to call it the inciting incident, it's just like the event of the film happens so early, and uh, the resulting you know the, what follows is you know the fallout of that, and that is the majority of the movie. Um, so I don't I, him and his arc uh, and Albert as well as sort of this um, I guess conventionally more straightforward. We can. It's it's again literalized. We can read it a little bit more easily than we can um, the other arc with you know back at the school with the the remaining students. Um, but uh, I don't know. Both of those play into each other super well, and I like both of those arcs uh, a lot more as a result. I think I'm really glad you brought up the gaze um, because I think that and I, I agree with you. Like, there's definitely um, uh, a male gaze component to how Albert is looking at them. Obviously, right? Like, it's it's interesting that it's also uh, deeply othering. Right? I think they they actually mention their status as native Australians and say that might be why they look so different or why they can traverse this area so differently. Um, The gaze is always sort of multifaceted whenever it appears. And this is a very leering movie. Um, There were moments that it reminded me almost of De Palma. I'm thinking like, especially in our introductory scene with the girls, it reminded me of nothing so much as like almost a, um, an almost satiric version of the Carrie locker room scene Mm -hmm, where it's mm -hmm. like, there are these girls are like, and, there are a bunch of scenes like this, but particularly the first one when they're back in the schoolhouse, they're like laying on each other, tickling each other, playing with each other's hair. They're sort of intuitively reciting poetry to themselves and each other. And, um, there is this very sort of like sense of virginal innocence, right? Because like it's all but playing morning. There's like this, they're all wearing white. They're all fair skinned. They're all sort of like fair haired uh, or um, very like there's big virginal symbolism happening here. But also like it's not it's it's also subverting that very pointedly, right? Like these are not sort of like, this is not just a straightforward vision of innocence. In fact, there is an, a sense of rebelliousness, right? Like these women are excited about Valentine's Day. They keep toasting St. Valentine's. They keep talking about sexual desire, romantic desire, things like that. That stands in like very stark contrast to Appleby's um, like perception and um, desires for them. I'm sorry, not Appleby, Apple Yard, um, who from the very first moment is like almost desperate to control them, right? Like as they're going out on their field trip, she is sort of like almost um, breathlessly reminding them about the decorum that they need to demonstrate and how they can't be, um, uh, they, they can't be like bringing shame to the school, right? I think, uh, Jason, you brought up earlier that like she, she sees, um, them mostly as paychecks. I would, um, push back a little bit against that. Not necessarily that you're wrong, but just that I think for Apple Yard, there is almost like this. And, and one thing that this movie does a really good job of sort of like symbolizing is that for Apple Yard, I don't think there's much of a difference between these girls leaving and dying. In, just mm-hmm. in her mind, I, I think that, like, there is this sense in which, like, 
once they are sort of out in the world and free of my my control and my sort of like um, motherly guidance, they are going to succumb to the temptations of the outside world and they might as well be gone, right? Which then it gives you a lot to read into the fact that these girls who are rebellious, right? Like they, sure, they read the poetry that they're supposed to memorize, but they certainly say it a lot differently, right? It's sort of like these teachers want them to memorize poetry, but they're like memorizing poetry. You know what I mean? There's like definitely a, a world of difference between reciting poetry and loving poetry the way these women do and loving each other the way they do, right? Like the, I think that the the themes of control and rebellion are established really early in this movie. And I think that like it, it creates this, um, it's it's almost difficult not to read what happens to the girls at Hanging Rock from the very beginning as something liberatory, right? It, it, because like they're they're never upset, they're never worried, except for the one who doesn't go with them, right? They're almost supernaturally at ease and entranced by their environment. They sleep at one point among the rocks. They disappear into the earth. They have no trouble getting around to the point where they even take off their shoes and their stockings in order to more easily traverse, right? So it's a very it's a very physical symbolism, uh, and it's a very gazy symbolism. But I really loved the way that, like, through that physicality, um, I think Weir is able to say a lot of different things, not just about sex, but about like um, gender and about uh, this sort of like. Um, dichotomy and, and battle between control and expression that is sort of playing out and what, what happens uh, to everybody else when um, the battle is sort of decided, right? And and what it, what it means that all of these people all of a sudden have to grapple with this uh, existential sort of power vacuum that's left behind when these liberated women literally sort of like up and transcend this world that we're on right now. And all of a sudden, that's something that everybody has to sort of like reckon with. Um, and it really brings into stark relief, I think, for everybody involved, including um, Albert and including uh, especially Mrs. Appleyard and, and Sarah. Um, it brings into sort of stark relief just what they had been doing, right? And and what the stakes of this sort of um, battle for self-control or control of the other was really all about for, for each of them in turn. I think that there's something really fascinating happening there that doesn't necessarily um, – reconcile all of the characters in a really like clean way the way that Aaron did but I think that once we start to think about it in those terms I think that um, the movie becomes really realized at least in my mind I think I'm going to nitpick something you said a little while ago in order to try and make a bigger point so apologies for that but but I, I think I, I kind of um, you you had disagreed with with Jason's kind of portrayal as Mrs. Appleyard as like um, only kind of caring for these girls as far as like paycheck goes. And then you said that, um, you know, she, she may not like see too much of a difference between these girls, like going away and no longer, you know, providing a financial assistance, not financial assistance, but like money, you know, to the, to the girls school uh, versus them like perishing or just like disappearing forever. And I think like, that's like partially true, but I think that that is like, that is more like what Apple yard herself, like tells herself, but that's, yeah. I don't think like really the reality of the situation. Oh, you're right. and that's I, not a bad point. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think there's like a very interesting thing happening with her characterization where, and I may, may be overstating the importance of this on the film, just cause like, I find this like such an interesting point whenever I come across it in something. But I think there is, there's like the idea that, that being the one who kind of uh, uh, enacts or like perpetuates like 
misery and like suffering on others, like kind of like acts upon yourself, like in turn, like twofold, right? Where Mrs. Appleyard, well, especially like, this particular form, right? I mean, she's a repressor. Yeah. She is repressing yeah. sexual desires on well, other also, people. Also, like everyone, everyone kind of else in the movie, right? Like, there's a there's a very, um, and it, like I guess Twin Peaks esque, although that's maybe like reversed, right? Uh, a kind of thing happening here, where with the exception of like one or two of the kind of like older male characters. Maybe that's pointed. Maybe they're just not in the the film uh, for enough to to have this kind of apply to them. But with the exception of like those characters, pretty much everyone like does feel this kind of guilt and shame at the knowledge of like what is going on. Right. And I Mm -hmm. think that all of them in their own way kind of understand that they are, you know, complicit in some manner to to the disappearance, to uh, the kind of factors that that kind of ended up leading to that. There's a very like. uh, uh, like the 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 ones who walk away from Omelas, like that short story about uh everybody just you know well very small amount of people yeah. just kind of leaving this town. There's like something like very much like of that in uh a uh, picnic at Hanging Rock that I kind find very fascinating. Right, this I kind really of- love what you're saying about especially like the fact that everybody seems to be personally guilty. Like they seem to feel personally guilty about the fact that yeah. this happened. Yeah, I mean. I- I think that is like a, a a a very like smart point and also one that I think like like if you want to speak to like how this film has like gone on to like be so influential and like been considered like years down the line like I think that like that point is something that like kind of applies to like most people at least that that I interact with daily right anybody that lives in like America or Australia who's not you know indigenous in some manner like I think if they're not a total piece of shit, like kind of feels that way about the structure of society. Right. And I think that like it acts as a very interesting look at this society and how they react to this occurrence, but also that acting as a metaphor for kind of, you know, how society operates, uh, uh, you know, in areas of the world that have been, you know, colonized in this manner. Oh, you mean, so like whenever anything bad ever happens to me, I, there's a part of my brain that's just like, well, it just, that makes sense because I'm, so evil and i'm the recipient of so much evil so yeah. it just kind of makes sense that i would be I, karmically punished i guess i'll go i guess i'll go get some very cheap food that i'm not going to think about why it's so cheap i'll just <laughs> ooh, spend the night in you know have a nice time uh it is interesting to think about uh like the empathy of those characters of the of the we'll say just of everybody else aside from the missing girls for these missing girls like you said harry um they all seemed like personally responsible they have some sense of like r- grief or responsibility for like they're knocking down the sheriff's door just to know more about it we deserve to know we you know they're all on the hunt for these girls um as i was watching i read that somewhat more and maybe it's just because of like i, I want to see this as more of a whimsical cynical take than like a truly empathetic one or like building three-dimensional characters in from every perspective but i i i'm still i guess i'm just lost maybe we can talk about help me i guess this is jason's personal helpline why are say the townspeople the average townspeople we don't really know their names just you know person a person b why are they so personally aggrieved why um like why do they feel personally responsible for the disappearance of the girls when i ask myself that as i'm just like okay understand this move to the next thing in the movie 
my understanding is it's because they see these girls as like representative of the kind of person people they are. We are just normal people in this Victorian ass 1900s, not truly Victorian, but you know, it, the high society, uh, you know, early uh, 1900s era, um, many airs to put on people. These girls are just normal people like us. We like, like what what happened to them could happen to us interesting and we, need to, and, and we need to prevent that from happening and i feel like that's a very simplistic take i didn't really read that there was a whole lot more going on there than that but what you guys are saying sort of makes me maybe oh, double take i mean i have sort of the opposite reaction right which is like kind of like mrs Appleyard, and, and um i'm really glad that aaron brought up repression because i think it's really central to understanding this i think that like the the girls that disappear are literally angelic right like I, multiple times they're referred to as like oh now i understand like she was an angel all along she was too good for this world they're like the like like spiritually clean people in the mm. world in all of with all of the loaded imagery as to what that means they're virginal right they're unsullied by the world they have this childlike innocence they have this beauty that is almost too good for the world they uh, have this intuitive understanding of beauty and poetry and life that nobody else has and i think that like I think that there is this very repressed, like the fact that everybody in this movie desires something from these women so badly, so desperately, um, they can't quite put their finger on what that desire is, or rather they're repressing what that desire is because they find it ugly in themselves because they've been taught to find it ugly, that instead it manifests as this sort of like... Uh, obsessive control mechanism, right? Where it's like, oh, I get it. Like, I want what's best for these girls. That's why I'm so obsessed with them, right? Apple Yard's like, I'm not sexually attracted to this math teacher. I'm not like titillated by the fact that these women have opportunities to be sexually liberated that I never had. In fact, I'm concerned for their immortal souls, right? I need to control them. I need to shape them in my image. When in fact, she's doing that to run from her own sexual desires, right? To run from the fact that she is uh, like attracted to the math teacher. She's attracted to the idea of being a more liberated person, a person who is more in okay. touch with her natural uh, so sexuality. She- I, I sort of read that repression in everyone and how it manifests. And especially, I think one of the, and um, we can come back to this, but like, I think that the fact that Sarah is more unabashed um, and unapologetic about her sexuality and her attraction is one of the reasons why everybody hates her so much. Oh, I think that okay. Appleyard and she have this sort of foil relationship where um, all of the teachers are so obsessed with specifically controlling and literally like breaking and bending Sarah because they're so afraid of what they see of herself of themselves in her right because, in her, yeah. her sort of her obsession with these girls is so unabashed and so right. openly sexual and it's not about control and it's not about um it's not sublimated through this idea of education and control instead it's just straight up and these people can't handle that so they need to sort of like repress it in her so okay. that they can repress it in themselves yes. right it's a very sort of like incestuous freudian type of uh impulse in my opinion see that makes a lot of sense if i can sorry to jump in but just to put a cap on my understanding so she's maybe at mrs appleyard and we're saying broadly like the uh, tertiary characters in the movie everybody who's concerned about her about these kids i did it too um is that she like 
we were talking about sort of the um, you know innocence of youth, virginal innocence, the uh, coquettish perf- performance of um, you know young femininity, brushing each other's hair and reciting poetry to each other. That is a performance of that kind of femininity that maybe Mrs. Apple Yard expects that these kids know that they need to perform to get a lot to get by, but they sure. have within them, as you were discussing. Oh, I mean, earlier, they're so sensual, they, right? Yeah, I mean, right, the, they the have, girls are so sensual, right? They they have like a, a, a an appetite for rebellion. It's not like explicit. They're not picking up well, and it's but, natural, but they have that, right? I right. mean, there's it, there is this really fascinating, arises. yeah. There's this fascinating depiction of it as something that is not actually in opposition to anything. Right. It's just natural. I mean, like look at how easy it is for the girls to exist in nature compared mm-hmm. to everybody else. I think all of these people are afraid that these that uh, what these what these girls are naturally is actually what they should be and what they're supposed mm-hmm. to be. And I think they kind of can't handle it. Right. Right. And so the like if we're just, you know, trying to think about this in the simplest, most visual terms I can imagine, if there's like a degree of blatantness, I guess, of that uh, fully actual, fully like liberated, we'll say, uh, woman, then Mrs. Appleyard recognizes she never had the opportunity. She isn't that. So she seeks in a certain way to to stifle it, to suppress it. And the kids were getting by the um, Marion, uh, Miranda, the kids who go missing are passing in the culture that she is that mrs appleyard is creating to to a certain extent still with you know a a fair degree of i'm sure mischief sarah is not she is unable to perform and that is why maybe she gets a little bit more of the brunt is what you're saying from mrs appleyard i i I mean i I think that sarah's just sort of caught between right like i mean i think the girls who disappear are almost like graduates right it's like oh they've they've transcended this sort of like binary this this restrictive world that they're a part of they're allowed to sort of like go off and be um who who they are and to to sort of like leave this this world of repression that that um has been what they are were heir to and i think everybody else is stuck in it and they're trying to sort of like deal with the fact that now they understand that okay yeah i i think like the the part of the reason that 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 kind of stuff is is so tricky is that like the the with the exception of the the teacher the the three women that disappear are um you know they are like certainly you know living in an oppressive society that is very restrictive and and all that um but i don't think unless i'm forgetting some scenes we don't get the feeling that they specifically are kind of acting out against that except in the nature of them leaving right like i don't think mm. we have any character yeah. moments that well, are, i think that's I mean, a pretty big signal though like that I think, they would I, I, my, I, my my point is that i think that they do not themselves kind of voice uh you know the the injustices of society and whatnot they kind of act as a mirror that the audience but then also the other characters in the film can view and have that those aspects of society kind of reflected back at them, uh, right it's, sure. they it's, it's are called silent punk they're they're sort of beyond it almost right like that's what i'm saying about how everything un- they do sorry, feels so natural yeah okay. they're in their lane no but i mean literally they're sort of graduated right it's like all of yes. these people are stuck in this this age of of control and repression and some of them are uh, at different stages of rebelling against it, fighting at it, or rebelling against themselves in order to sort of lock that shit down. I think that the girls who disappear from this world are totally liberated. I think that like hmm. um, the the angel the especially angelic Miranda Saint Clair, who is sort of like everybody's favorite, right? She's like the most popular girl in school. I think she's literally just like I'm like 
I'm just totally at one with myself in this way that is totally natural and intuitive um, and in touch with uh, her sexuality and the land. And I think that like, that's why she literally can't be a part of the world. Right. Because, because it's like, Oh, like, self-denial is like what it means to be human in this world and so like when you stop denying yourself you almost transcend your like human form right like i think that it's not an accident that like it's so caught up with like the land and nature that all of these people all of these australian people are sort of like she's like the next step right she's like uh fucking akira where where akira becomes so powerful as a psychic that uh he he like sheds his mortal physical form that's kind of what happens with these girls <laughs> i brought it there back to go. anime yeah Oh, I was just yeah, going to look I, up what episode I, I, that was of our in our in our backlog so that I can direct but, the but listeners. But you're right. Oh, please I, don't don't do that, Jason. Aaron, no, no, it's no, no, really no. tough, right? Because like that is that is not um that's not like strictly dialectical, right? It's like these these girls aren't symbols of rebellion versus symbols of repression. There's yes. something else. Their act kind of works as that, maybe, but not not them as characters uh, in a way that I I find kind of interesting. Um, and also maybe slightly problematic i guess if you want to poke at it like i don't know like they're yeah they're unbothered but they're also not you know in the position that you know sarah is in right so like i don't know i i i think yeah, i have a reading I mean, of that that's not like you know uh, a criticism but no i mean it's um, tough right it's it's easier to be a hot straight girl than it is to be a messy queer girl huh like that's right boy that sucks <laughs> yeah and like yeah. sarah ends up committing suicide at the end of this movie right and it's yes. like who is responsible for that is like a big part of or quote scare quotes responsible right but like yeah she has endured all of this abuse and, and ultimately i think the movie comes down in like kind of a slightly problematic place maybe but arguably because maybe. it's like it, it definitely I mean, points also, the fingers at the institutions though ultimately. I, I think that's that's kind of the I think that's where like the, as you pointed out, like the satirical nature of, of their portrayal kind of comes in to where they, they, you know, they are literally just portrayed wearing all white. They are quote, it's quoting not poetry. Yeah. <laughs> it's like birds land on their fingers and shit. You know what I mean? Like it, the, it is, I don't even want to say that's meant to be read as like comical, but like I, I found it quite funny. Honestly, a lot of those early scenes is like so over the top and I think a self-aware manner. Um, but yeah, I think we're, we're supposed to understand that these are not like kind of, these are not like characters, right? Like these are kind of caricatures and oh, operating right. oh, as very that. Much so. um, they're, they're symbols, right? And yes. like, I think that's what works so well for me, right? Is that the symbols transcend the world, they depart. And then we get this really tragic sort of like, it's, it's almost biblical, right? It's like all that's left are us screw ups who can't be those people. And we're sort of like locked, locked in place by our desires and our repressions and hurting each other and hurting ourselves because of those things. And we can watch it happen and it'll only make things worse, right? Like it only makes us want them worse. It only makes us want to be something other than what we are worse. Right. And we still misunderstand. There's sort of a really great, like almost religiosity to this movie that, that really speaks to me that I really dig. Is that where we get the ending then with Mrs. Appleyard and Sarah has, well, it's, it's roughly the ending. It's the last like act of the movie um, where Sarah throws herself out the window or is pushed. I guess it's not shown, but presumably tosses herself out the window, um, lands in the uh, greenhouse, dies. Uh, one of the other teachers runs upstairs. Mrs. Appleyard is seen in like funerary garb. Uh, just stares directly into the camera on weeping, unblinking. And then we get sort of a, you know, 
Chad got really into the seventies and was never seen again. Post credit or post uh, narrative of Mrs. Appleyard went to Hanging Rock, uh, was found dead or was she never found anyway it's implied no that- she was found dead her body was found i mean she okay. went to go be with she, the she was trying she was to a- climb yeah. <laughs> which is like such a good metaphor for this person like it's yes. kind of in the last moments trying to well reject that's, this thing and right and, that, yeah, that's, that's exactly what i was, to, what, I was right? what i was trying to think like where i was trying to because again the uh, maybe it's changing now but my experience watching the movie was such that like that moment was the first time I felt empathy with uh, Mrs. Appleyard was like, oh, the grief of losing these kids is finally like hitting. I feel like now that we've discussed it, it was kind of seeded throughout. It was shown. It was like exhibited, but just not in a clear enough, big, broad enough, like, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog, Amy's hammer smacking me over the head with it way for me to like get it in the moment. Um, Cody, you can leave your camera on. You've played Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, but like I. I, I guess that was you mean the first movie th- star. Excuse me. You mean film character Sonic the Hedgehog. That's who you're yes, talking about. I don't the, know what video of game. the uh, second highest grossing animated film of all. I don't think that's true. Uh, but one of the one of the most highly rated uh, animated films. Uh, uh, that also is not true. true that's also not true. <laughs> no, what are you, talking about? you know what? I'm going to I'm going to turn my monitor off for a few seconds. Be anyway. financially <laughs> successful okay. enough to get a sequel and probably another. It sequel, was one of the highest uh, film highest Sonic grossing films of 2020. I remember that being a true fact <laughs> of, the, of the COVID-19 yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah, one of the, yeah, one of, yeah, it made a. Uh, uh, fifty million dollars and immediately <laughs> broke all records it, that uh, year. It made yeah. it made a shitload there, of money. There was one I mean, movie. It yeah. can't, must be can't got, be argued. I got I got twenty dollars for my birthday that year, and I was the in the top ten highest grossing films. <laughs> going yeah, going, going to the theater with a mask on, being like, "Should we be doing this?" Uh, it's middle of the pandemic for Sonic the Hedgehog. Damn, that sucks. <laughs> it's low. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad we got to Appleyard. I think that like. She has a really, really interesting and terrible way of expressing grief, right? Like, I think we already talked about her foil-like relationship with Sarah. I mean, I think Sarah is, like, almost a manifestation of, uh, like, what these teachers fear about themselves, I think that's why they want to hurt and control her so badly. Um, I, I think that like Appleyard has this really great, really terrible um, monologue. It's almost a non sequitur, right? Where like they're eating dinner. She's talking to this teacher about things. And then all of a sudden Apple, Appleyard is like, I can't believe that that math teacher went off and got herself uh, raped and killed like a schoolgirl. I rely, I had come to rely upon her and enjoy her company so much in her, her masculine intellect she says, right? Like that's when the movie really drops all auspices of not being like a very queer movie is when Miss Appleyard is like, she's clearly grieving this person that meant a lot to her, but she has to do it by sexually shaming her because that's like literally the only world that she knows where she has to be like, oh, like the reason why this person disappeared into the rock is because she's more sexually liberated than I am. Right, that's, her, the, that's her vocabulary, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like, because like, all you can do in this world, this this binary world of repression is double down, right? It's like every time somebody meets with um, tragedy, it, it has to be because of the rules you've been taught, they flouted them, right? So like all of a sudden, everything is like, oh, like your suffering is because uh, you weren't repressed enough. Therefore, like the answer for me is to repress myself more, even though we all know what that leads to, right? So it's, it's really mm-hmm. – uh, um, I think that Mrs. Appleyard is a really fascinating character in this. Um, yeah. And really kind of like in a weird way, the heart of the movie, um, along I with Sarah, say, I think. Only in this discussion have I come around to her being like 
pretty much the intersection of a lot of these things. Uh, secretly, the main character question mark, big yellow, red uh, YouTube thumbnail saying like the one character you missed in Picnic and Hanging Rock. Um, I wanted to get everybody's thoughts final. I, we've sort of like skirted around it and talked pretty directly about it too. About the ending, uh, do we have anything else to say about the ending? We're we're getting on about an hour here, and I don't want to keep us to wait too long uh, on an off day. Um, Cody, Aaron, any final thoughts? About isn't the, the ending final? her? Isn't the it? Did we just kind of roundabout yeah, yeah. talk about I, the I, ending? But 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 you haven't both uh, contributed as as much as uh, what I the have. F- so oh, I just geez. there's a certain Ooh, quota. Wow, there's, there's a quota. Outs, huh? There's a quota. No, I mean you, you don't you it needs must not. Uh, but if you had any final thoughts, I think that's where we'd put them before the junk drawer. Uh, this whole movie feels like the end of an era to me, and I think that's really appropriate, right? It's like this school is is going to end. Like these are almost like, like I said, like I really view these girls who disappear at the beginning as like they're like evolving, they're transcending, and uh, these people are left behind reeling with what that means. And I really like the implications of this movie that like what it means is like everything is going to have to change, right? Like we are going to have to reevaluate our relationship to one another and to um, ourselves. And like, nothing is going to be the same. Like the, the old world is coming to an end. Right. And I, I think that like setting it in the 19, the early 1900s is like a really good way to sort of like it prefigures the world that it's talking about and mm-hmm. a part of when it was made. Right. In a, in a way that's really satisfying to me. Agreed. Then I think with that, we can probably open up the junk drawer and get everybody's non, uh, I guess, talking point thoughts about the movie uh anything that uh, wouldn't fit as part of the larger discussion i want to get out before we get to our final segments cody uh what went through your mind that just didn't make it into this episode sure uh yeah i guess the only other quick note i'll put forth uh if anything about picnic at hanging rock vibes generally positively with you one movie recommendation i will put forth is a little number called ham on rye I believe it's a 2019 really, really small movie, like indie shoestring budget type of thing. I think the director's name is uh, Tyler. I know it's Tyler Taramina. I just don't know if that's how you say his last name. Um, but that was uh, another quarantine watch for me, and I particularly enjoyed it. I'm not going to say a lot about it. But Does it have um, anything kind of to do this- with Bukowski? It doesn't look like it does. Sorry, I'm shutting up. I like a ham on rye sandwich. Sure, me too. That's a solid, that's with some mustard. I'll watch it at some point, Cody. Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, I will eat the sandwich as well. <laughs> Still um, kosher? But I, I, I yield the floor. Um, oh, also, yes. I, uh, I, I want to point out, like, there was in the plumber, I forget when, uh, we covered the plumber on this podcast. Check it out as another episode, another one of Peter Weir's films um, made for TV. Uh, the... There's a point in that movie where I believe it's when uh, Jill, the main character, is she's near the end of a rope and she sort of leans against the wall, or maybe it's like the plumber. Anyway, somebody leans up against a wall and you just see Aboriginal art. Uh, I think it's Papua New Guinean, but still. Um, and somebody's commenting like Riley on the situation or on relations between each other. I remember the moment. I forget the exact script. 
almost the exact same thing happens in this movie. It's when they're tallying the cost of the girls who are pulling tuition uh, and they're talking, it's Mrs. Appleyard and one of the other teachers. And she turns to an Aboriginal figure like seated in the corner of her office. And she says, I suppose we'll get through it somehow. And then the camera pans back to the scene in play and the, the scene goes on. I mean, it's, it's slight, it's subtle, but uh, it's hard not to read like some of the more colonial class uh, based themes that are running through the movie in that moment. And I just find it funny that Peter Weir basically did the same thing in two different movies with the exact same concept and almost the exact same framing, like somebody pointing away from the camera toward a piece of art uh, that did not come from the culture that person is from. And, uh, you know, some slight, slight at, at uh, some slight comment on, uh, you know, culture and clash. And then we move on. I just found that like, God damn it. He did it again. We're, he did it again. Um, any final junk drawer thoughts from Harry uh, and Aaron? Um, I love how almost absurdly full of menace and portent so much of the imagery of this movie is. There's that one amazing scene where the greenhouse dude is just like, like showing something to uh, like one of the other groundskeepers. And he's like, did you know that there are plants that can move? And then like, he, he like reaches down to stroke this plant and the plant just sort of like retracts from him and then starts moving. And like the groundskeeper looks horrified and like the guy slowly starts laughing and continues laughing. And we just cut back to the plant still sort of like writhing. And then the scene just cuts and it's just like, Oh, oh that probably won't come up again. <laughs> that probably doesn't mean anything. That's probably not like, like deeply disturbed. And then of course, uh sarah jumps into that plant specifically uh when she dies or like when albert wakes up and there's just a swan in his bed after uh he had had that dream about the girls disappearing um again just like so much good imagery like that that's just like so it's like it's it's on the nose but that doesn't rob it of any of its sort of like elemental power in a way that i um that i really like and just like lots of references to things right like at one point, one of the girls is talking about how like, oh, when when the girls disappeared, she saw a red cloud in the sky. And like they had earlier been talking about the fact that the hanging rock is technically a volcano that hasn't erupted for a million years or whatever. Um, and that that just never comes up again. So like they just keep doing that shit. Um, really love that. It does such a good job of like creating the like ambiguity. Speaking of ambiguity, anybody anybody read about the the, the lost the the not published chapter from the final book that finally explains that no. the, shouldn't be taken as I no. What happens? Do you say canon? Do you say canon in this yeah. kind of a yeah. situation? So. Canon, I guess. Uh, so th- there was a there was a there was an excised final chapter. Um, the original draft of the novel included a final chapter in which the mystery was resolved. I'm reading from Wikipedia now. Um, at her editor's suggestion, Lindsay removed it prior to publication. So that's good. And I think Lindsay and like, Yo, interviews, shout outs to like, editors. I, every once in a while, yes. Uh, every once in a while, no. But uh, yeah. Uh, so she like later in life would say like, you know, when people would ask her like what's happening would a- answer it ambiguously. And I think like probably decided like, oh, yeah, that this being ambiguous is kind of maybe uh, uh, more core to the point. Right. Um, but there was a chapter 18 was uh, later published uh, after her death as a standalone book with a chapter and then a bunch of like interviews and stuff called The Secret of Hanging Rock. Um, but essentially it was like a, some sort of like time space blip, you know. So it became sci-fi. Oh, it's like right literally just like a Twin Peaks thing where Thanos, they like, Thanos snapped his face. They fell into the Black Lodge. <laughs> Mrs. Appleby, uh, I don't feel so good. Not, yeah, I mean, I think like... Uh, uh, 
yeah, I think like a time warp, essentially. I mean, can, there you go. I, 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 I'll be honest. I'd be lying if I said Not that good. wasn't fucking rad. I, I'd be, I, I mean, mean, it, it is rad. It'd be yeah, all, sure. yeah, it's kind of rad. Yeah, it, it, standalone. Yeah, of course, pretty rad. Uh, but as, as an addendum to this it, movie, leave that shit out. You yeah, know what I mean? Dog not, shit. Well, I'm not watching this movie shit. being like, oh, it's a time warp. Let me look for all the hints. Can you imagine? The time what, if you, what if there was just up- another scene at the end of this and it was just a Sasquatch? They're just like walking around and then a Sasquatch <laughs> just, like just a comes out shot from behind. In the background just, yeah, just and he him. just like fucking grabs one of the girls and she's like, no. And then he like goes back <laughs> under a rock and that's it. Just fucking doing the really quick walk where he turns to the side for a second. <laughs> just, yeah, mouth bloody. <laughs> uh i am i'm taking precious time to uh find the um oh, google trends okay. uh uh search volume over time mm-hmm. for picnic at hanging rock ending explained there's some there's some dude like cool, opening thanks. his mouth really wide and like pointing at something in yeah. the thumbnail yeah well, I'll let you know how that's going. For some reason, it searched Michael Gambon instead. So, R.I.P. Uh, that will damn. R.I.P. That should probably mark the end of uh, the junk drawer, which I can close up now as we've been sort of jangling and jingling around yeah. the things inside. But that is not the end of the show. Not Still by absurdly a- loud junk drawer. I'm sorry. I try to make it as loud as possible because otherwise we get short ones. Well, it's and the quiet it's the amount like, of sounds. Folks. It's like. Oh, yeah, it's the amount of sounds. It like, also sounds like two you, distinct drawers opening. It, it sounds is. like there was a second drawer inside the Haven't first drawer. Have you ever room. had a cluttered drawer? I have. No, <laughs> there are different levels. This, to so the the, the real whatever. thing is, once you get you to the ultimate people. level of a cluttered drunk drawer, there's no sound because it's so full of shit that nothing is moved. There's no <laughs> space for movement. <laughs> it's, it's just like a gelatinous cube in there. It just completely like yeah, covers with like the a surface nail poking area. Up, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, there's like a small knife. You know what I mean? Anyway, yeah. the junk drawer is closed, and we're getting into our penultimate segment. Well, it's a give oh, me. Oh, I forgot about this segment. You I'm forgot sorry, about Jason. this segment. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, I'm, I'm, behind, I'm behind on the gifts. I, I'm behind on the gifts because I had a hard time downloading the last couple of movies. Who would have thought? Uh, but it's the segment of the show where we like to uh, ask, where I like to ask the group, what do you think should go out with the episode on Twitter? Uh, Blue Sky, where, wherever we're at in the next six days, who knows? Um, uh, for an episode gif, we pull a shot from the movie, uh, usually from illicitly downloaded files of the movie. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Try Love. Um, let me know, uh, Aaron, what you think should be the gift from this movie. What what imagery stuck with you? I don't know, man. Look, just take like a just click around the first fifteen minutes. They're sitting on rocks and shit. You know, they're reciting po like just one of those. You know what I mean? I don't have a specific one. I'm sorry. Literally any of the shots of of women in like uh, white robes, uh, just like lounging at hanging rock. That's any any one of those shots. He those, loves that's movies, folks. Yeah, just anyone where they're at a picnic at Hanging Rock. How about that? Most of the movie. I, I was going to make fun of you because I think every, but I can't. You, I, I was, Don't you, do this. You, you played directly into it. Like I was going to say, Aaron's just going to want one of the picnic at Hanging Rock, and then you fucking did it without those words, but you did it. Yeah, uh, he tweeted it out. It's yeah, that's the best. What do you want? He blue skied it out. Cody, save us from this hell. Yeah, I, I guess to my meager credit, I was on the lookout for for gifable imagery and like this is a very pretty movie but there's no way that there's no way the gif's not going to have the the titular hanging rock in it right uh, so the the couple that i landed upon around 1538 it's um miranda like 
goes uh, my notes are a little scattered she either like leaps over a gate or opens a gate uh and then it's just like immediate cut to it's this rapid montage between like her face looking up at the sky and there's birds flapping around and horses doing horse stuff it's just like a very frenzied um like couple of seconds just you know the, the meanwhile in the background which you, you can't you can't jiff a sound because then it becomes a video but there's also like this rumbling coming from the rock um so like I don't, that imagery was super cool and then 2735 thereabouts it's um when miranda and friends are climbing the rock miranda stops in front of it's like a, a passageway it's dark on like the left and right sides of the frame and there's a uh, you know, the sliver of light peeking through, she kind of steps between it and you can see everybody else in her, the other four or the other three, rather, excuse me, um, kind of passing through behind her while she's like looking mm-hmm. through the passageway. Uh, I, I thought that looked really cool. So those are my picks. That uh, second one was one of mine as well. Uh, well, actually, I would say it was my only one. Uh, Harry. Uh, at about 1550 to 16 minutes in, I believe, um, uh, Miranda cuts the cake that says St. Valentine on it and she cuts it like just half down the middle. And then they say to St. Valentine and they all toast and it cuts away from the cake. And then right before the scene ends, it just cuts back to the cake cut in half, like right down the middle. Uh, really good. Again, really full of portent. I'm sure nothing bad is going to happen. Um, let's see around an hour four, uh, when Albert is recovered from hanging rock, uh, at, um, death's door, he, um, hands the other guy, um, a scrap of, of one of the girl's dresses to let him know that they're still out there. Maybe, uh, that's a good one. And then around, um, an hour and 28 minutes in, um, is the moment where the girl who does return goes to the dance studio and she's in red and, um, all the dancers are in white on either side of her and like they're separated by um, the like practice bar and they're all just staring at her in the middle of the room. Um, the only character who's dressed in red. Uh, I found that to be a really striking image. Those girls really do turn on that, on that, on, on, on Irma real fucking quick. Don't they like there's the, the hounding and the, what happened to them? What did you do? And then there's just one girl off in the corner, just shrieking alone. I loved that they gave that girl a whole shot to herself to just scream. Well, that's the nothing. idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's the idea. Um, thank you all for your gift suggestions. That was, in fact, my only my only one uh, and one very much very similar to it, where Miranda is peeking through a certain gap, a chasm in the rock, and her friends pass behind her. Seems eminently gifable. You know, Aaron, take notes. I mean, I know I'm the one taking notes, but take notes. This is how the bit works. Just uh, pick on your hanging rock. Just get a that picnic on has been. Rock. Yes, indeed, folks. That has been uh, Aaron's right, to be fair. Give me a gif. Uh, final segment we have to introduce together, Harry. Yes, it's the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you so much, gentlemen. That introduction is like a long lost sibling to me. Uh, so thought process coming into, into this week, my knee jerk reaction was, okay, let's dig into uh, unsolved, unexplained mysteries uh and i was looking them up uh, and i was doing it late at night which didn't really help things because i i found most of the unsolved mysteries to be uh, very spooky too spooky for me uh to to dig into uh, much less in this type of medium i even did this um in retrospect very dumb thing but i googled uh silliest unsolved mysteries and google even went so far <laughs> as to call up my candy ass and autocorrected silliest to scariest oh, no! um <laughs> Which uh, which sucked. I, f- um, I, felt, so I anyway, thought we were going to finally get to talk about the uh, Yatlov Pass incident. I was so excited. 
you know, maybe maybe episode six hundred will get there. Yeah, I think they solved that shit, didn't they? It was a couple of years ago they solved the Diadolf Pass. I don't there know. I didn't theories, Google any further. But I don't think that there's a definitive answer. Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cody, uh, what are the silliest next, ones? Next, next, next season on on Trilo. <laughs> no, uh, so I I, I downgraded a, a little bit. I, we're pivoting to urban legends, which are still largely grounded in uh, eerie spookiness and spooky eeriness. But there are some lighter ones. That's going to be our focus today. Regardless, though, uh, these are all occurrences Cat that are hard to explain. Also, Sorry. yes, uh, these are and as, these are occurrences. This is already going to be too much of a stretch. These are occurrences that are hard to explain, and yet. The try is out there. Um, nice. I, I, I was. I don't. Like, I was going to go I a little bit. I got to be honest with you. It was. It I was mean, almost going to be the try know. is love there, but then my hamstring started hurting for how much of a stretch that was. Um, but that's that's what we're doing. Uh, the try is out there, whether Aaron likes it or not. I'm going to present each prompt related to an urban legend one at a time. We're going to use the Spinner app to determine the order. Coincidentally, Aaron is going to be first every time. It's going to be really fun. Uh, you get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer. The person with the most points at the end will win. Uh, trivia Mafia rules. Here's a fun one. Trivia Mafia rules are going to apply here. So use your noodles, not your Googles. With that, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, we're going to start with the, with the Men in Black. Maybe you've heard of them. The su- uh, successful film franchise is based on this idea as well as a Men in Black comic book series, which I didn't know existed, uh, that plays under the uh, the theory that well-dressed government agents appear in ufo exposure environments to clean things up and keep things quiet uh, brain scan wash people who know a little too much that sort of thing my question for you all is how tall is tommy lee jones and the first guess is going to be ah the gods are merciful it is um jason so jason how tall is tommy lee jones uh tommy lee jones is five eleven. Jason is going with 5'11", locking that in. Next guess is going to give me Jason again. Uh, next guess is going to be Aaron. Aaron, how tall do you think Tommy Lee Jones is? Does Is he taller than Will Smith? You know, like I'm in that, you know, uh, I'm going to go with 6'2". Uh, Aaron or are you is gonna going to Harry? six poop. What you going to do, brother? Yeah, yeah what you going to do, Harry? You know what? I won last week. Uh, spoilers for last week's episode. <laughs> and uh, oh, I was going to guess six one. I'm still just going to go six one. He seems tall, yeah. but not that tall. Honestly, a lot of guys when you get the the height question, guessing in that range is pretty. It's not a bad bet. I, and it's like always that they're uh, just six feet tall, but they everybody says six one because you got it. Uh, yes. <laughs> you do literally got a, a going off a few sources on the internet. Tommy Lee Jones is allegedly six feet. Zero inches. Uh, Harry and Jason are equidistant, so they both get a point. Wait, they don't split a point? No! Absolutely not. <gasps> no! Um, so yeah, that's how that goes. Shout out to uh, six-foot-tall King Tommy Lee John. I don't fucking know, man. Uh, so uh, Harry and Jason are on the board with a point of peach, uh, a, a peach, a piece. Um, everybody's still got on their peach-flavored beverages. How are we doing? Doing good. Uh, Jason is holding up a can. I Drink assume it. that is I'm empty. Good. It's not empty. Oh, you hear that? Well, you hear that? That was my dog. (laughs) I heard that. (laughs) Uh, Next up, we have the Curse of the Bambino. So this was the superstition that gained more momentum the longer the Boston Red Sox went without winning the Major League Baseball World Series, which had eluded them for 86 years, spanning from 1918 
It's 2004. Pretty long time. Uh, the Bambino was one of the many nicknames for Babe Ruth, one of the inarguable goats. Uh, that's greatest of all times is of baseball, who was sold from the Red Sox to the New York Yankees in 1920. The superstition came to be named in his honor. A little bit of context. Uh, but my question for you, gentlemen, since 2004, how many World Series have the Red Sox won? So since 2004, following 2004, when they finally obliterated the curse, after 2004, up to modern day, uh, present day, um, and I guess modern day, but present day, how many World Series have the Red Sox won? As a bonus for this question, I will offer three points to anyone who can identify the exact correct total. Uh, if nobody gets it exactly right and somebody just, just gets it closest, they will get the standard one point. But if anybody nails it dead on, they will get three points. We can call it the sportsman's bonus. So I will go ahead and spin the wheel here to see who goes first. And that is going to be Harry. So Harry, what is your guess? I'm going to go with uh, twice. Harry is going with two. Locking that in. Next down the line, we have Aaron. Uh, so Aaron, how many uh, post-2004 World Series have the Red Sox won? Wish I wasn't a fucking nerd, huh? You know? Uh, all do. Yeah, I'm going to go three Aaron is going with three and Jason how many do you think gonna shoot for the moon I'm gonna say they've won seven Jason is going with seven what are you talking uh, about? hey I have no defense so for uh, uh, nor do any of us uh, except for me because I knew the answer going into maybe, this maybe, maybe. Uh, uh, but that's again uh, the sportsman's bonus, more like the sportsman's curse. Mm. Following to the curse of the Bambino, following two thousand four, the Red Sox uh, have won the World Series in two thousand seven, in twenty thirteen, in twenty eighteen, and that's it. Shit. Three times. So that Let's is. Let's go. Ooh, I'm feeling. Ooh. Hate, hate to say it, uh, but uh, Aaron uh, pulled pulled ahead in one. Maybe I wasn't swoop. actually a nerd. Three... Maybe I knew that from the get go. Also, Harry is very close to saying three. He like walked it back. <laughs> I did walk it back. I could that see was so it in his stupid. eyes. Yeah, yeah. For anybody who's seen Clone High, he did the like the chikla. Um, that is one for uh, maybe one person. <laughs> um, so, anyways, uh, everybody's on the board, which is great. Isn't Mary uh, Win- Aaron is Elizabeth Winston in Clone High? Nope. Please don't. Please, please don't. Please don't. him on Clone High. No, 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 no. Here, it's the girl who looks cut like Mary right Elizabeth now. Winston. Mm, maybe don't start me on Mary Elizabeth. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh, Aaron has three points. Uh, Harry and Jason are on the board with one. Still extremely, verily, muchly anybody's gamely. For number three, we've got, uh, just uh, in quotes here, I have Paul is dead, which is the theory that Paul McCartney of the Beatles died in 1966 and was replaced by a double. Uh, there are similar theories in place for Avril Lavigne, which I did know about, and Melania Trump, which I didn't realize was a thing, but that's good fun. Um, my question for you is, though, when did the Beatles accumulate uh, accumulate more number one singles before 1966 uh, in and after 1966 or are the amounts the same so what do you guys think uh, three options i gave you the tantalizing opportunity to cover the spread if you so choose but the first guess is going to come from jason so jason what do you think oh boy i'm gonna say i'm gonna say the same god they had a wonderful late career Gotcha. All right. Jason is going with the same, locking that in. Uh, we've got the next guest coming from one, Harry Mackin. So, Harry, what do you think? Pre-1966, 
post-1966, but inclusive of 1966 as well, or other equal? I'll go pre. Right. Harry is going pre I want to and do pre. Aaron. Do it. I want to do pre, bet. but I guess Sportsman's I will do post. Uh, yes, of course, I'll do post. I wanted to do pre, though. You know, just a lot of right. fucking yeah. love me do ass shit. <laughs> yeah, Aaron was thinking you, me, and Dupree. A lot of standing. Um, everybody's yeah, standing around on yeah. TV shows with guitars like up here. You know, yeah, yeah. But there's also like God, there's let the girls going. There's, there's Sergeant Pepper's. I mean, there's a I lot know, of shit. number one. Yeah, I don't see famously commercially successful album. Yeah. Sergeant Pepper's. I mean, they, singles, I mean, they were, but every but album had singles. like nine singles, even if it sold like shit. <laughs> number one. It was the Beatles, dog. I don't think they had a number two. Single. You're right. You're right. They're, look, they're, look, they're the Beatles. I understand. That could go either way. I was just, I wanted to do, but that's fine. Uh, it's, it's very close, but in and after 1966, as the slightly greater amount of number one Beatles singles. So, uh, Aaron gets, uh, gets the point there. Sorry, Harry again. I would have swapped if you had been like, I'll swap, you know, so. No, I mean, I I think it could have gone either way. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I sixty six sounded later to me than it was, but I mean, let it be was seventy, so they had a lot of good stuff in the late sixties. Yep, unfortunately, the answers are already etched in concrete. The point totals uh, up to this point as well. So, frankly, we must let it be. Our next urban legend is that which proposes that various sewer systems, including the sewers found in New York City. The greatest city in the world, I've heard. Um, others may disagree uh, that those sewer systems are home to alligators. Uh, they talk about this in Colin Farrell's Daredevil. I don't know why that just came to mind. Um, shout out to Daredevil. Colin I love Pop. that it's Colin um, Farrell's Daredevil. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't remember the director. Uh, <laughs> or, I didn't feel like naming star anybody of else. The movie. <laughs> oh yeah, Michael Clark Duncan. We're the other uh, star my question... of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, John Favreau. You fucker. Uh, yeah, Leland Orser. Um, my question for you all, uh, how much does the average adult American alligator weigh? How big are those daddies? And I will throw that first to Harry. Uh, Harry, how much does one of those bad boys weigh? Uh, 50 pounds. Uh, all right. 50 pounds? I, I, I'll, well, I, I would like I to maybe sacrifice, pa- sacrifice part of my – no. Sacrifice part of my thing, my, my guess – can we let Harry take another go at that? <laughs> 50 pounds? Maybe you don't know adult? what an alligator is, pal. Adult? I, that's the thing. I, am I getting confused? Like, they're not I guess the, I shouldn't question. Croc- am I thinking of crocs? What? I don't know what's going All on. All I know is yeah. that alligators have the uh, long nose and crocodiles have the rounded nose. Or is the other way around? Oh, it's... Anyway. And you're Harry's thinking not going to tell uh, <laughs> The okay. difference between Norwegians and Jesus Germans. Um, I'm I'm uh, near next... the water in Red Dead Redemption Two. What is grabbing me? What is that? Is that a crocodile or an alligator? Hmm. Literally, I don't know the answer. Tell, that, this will help me out, Harry. Please. He's okay. Fuck you. Total. Spin. You're right. up three points, uh, next... dude. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> next guess is going to come from Aaron. How much I... does the average adult <laughs> American alligator weigh? Aaron's fucking me up. I wanted to go like 800 pounds, and now I'm like, I don't know yeah. what the fuck is going. <laughs> Jason, you were in the same boat. Now I want to temper, but if it's 800, I'm going to drive to Harry's house and kill him. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. Oh. Um, I fuck. I uh, am I bigger than? I'm gonna go 200 pounds. <laughs> I just uh, I love that unfinished thought. Am I big? I'm going to go to uh, 200 pounds, uh, locking it in for Aaron and Jason. 
uh, being the last one to guess for this. What is what is your estimate? I'm either going to look like the biggest brain or the fucking smallest brain that's ever appeared on this podcast, but I'm going to say 400 pounds average. I think those things are built yeah. like small, like Mitsubishi, you know, those cool Japanese trucks that everybody drives over there. I think they're about the weight. <laughs> like those scales have got to be heavier than like, you know, just, just, just like weight per mass. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're fucking barrels of muscle. Anyway, watch me yeah, 37 put, pounds. Can, <laughs> no, you can put a lot of things on scales. The average adult American alligator weighs 790 Whoa. pounds. I heard Aaron say 800. Harry, <laughs> um, fuck. that didn't happen. Uh, Fucker. 790 pounds. <laughs> uh, so Jason gets the point. By Why do I allow myself closer. to be swayed by these morons? <laughs> you know, I don't. Hey, I was pulling you up, buddy. I was pulling you up. You were. It's fun. Look, take. I hope you're happy. You know, I, I hope am you're with my yeah. two points in the game, one shared. So current scoreboard reads uh, Aaron with four points, Jason with two, Harry with one as we head into our final question. And for this final question, we will invoke Walt Disney's cryo chamber. Uh, and as of yet, excuse me, urban legend, uh, who knows, maybe that'll come to fruition someday. Uh, it suggests Walt Disney allowed for his head and or body to be placed in the cryostasis chamber located beneath Disney World following his death uh, my question for you is what is our most recent figure for the number of bodies that have been cryopreserved in the united states closest answer gets three points next closest gets two uh the other person gets one and we gotta spin that wheel so the first guess is going to come from the mouth of aaron grossman i think it's like i i yeah is it is that a thing? Am I bigger than? Uh, I'm gonna go. <laughs> I guess I go like single digits or very large digits. I don't. Can I get? I don't. Uh, I'm gonna go. Finish the fifty thousand. Aaron is going fifty thou, locking it in. Uh, <laughs> no, over nobody two. knows this, but the entire population of uh, Idaho is cryogenically frozen <laughs> right now. And Napoleon Dynamite and his family—they're all cryogenically frozen. Uh, speak of the devil, Harry, uh, you have the next God, guess. I, I was so. going to go like I think I'm just going to shoot for the moon and say like 200. <laughs> but so I guess I'm I'm going to stick to my guns and say something like that. Just like a bunch of billionaires and they're like their weird wives who are dying of uh, diseases that there's no cure for yet, but there might be someday, right? So they had to put them away. Right. So 200 is is That's the is 200, where you're going with. Uh, okay, sick just wives. Sure. Yep. 200, uh, six 200 six wives. Wives, my um, favorite Decemberists album. Oh, I was, I was thinking that too. <laughs> 200 military frozen yeah. wives. Uh, speak of the devil. Jason, uh, you sick wife, you. How many people are cryogenically frozen? I think America, and you're saying, to clarify, this is in America. Cryostasisly frozen. Well. Uh, but here's the thing, right? I'm not in the in the yeah in the United States. I'm not States, confident yes. about my answer, but I am confident that for some reason, probably capitalism, there have to be more cryogenically frozen people in America than like every other nation yes, in the world. That, that's what I'm relying on. It's like this is a fucking stupid ass country with way too much disposable income at the highest level. How much can it cost? A few million, I would say, le- like no. single digit million. Okay. 
I mean, how many millionaires? I don't even I mean, know how think, many millionaires. Think, think about what though. you're doing. Yeah. You're, you're basically giving somebody flesh to watch mm-hmm. for the next. Well, it depends if you're if you want to be years? locked in your own like soul chamber, or if they just put you in like a dip and dots freezer. <laughs> there are a lot of people who just opt <laughs> okay. for the sort of mass dip burial dots, dip and dots freezer cryogenic freezing, where they just sort of it's like a you know it's just like Papa John's around the world right now. There are two or three guys back there that are just sort of like, yeah, wake me up when. Uh, oh, yeah, are, are we counting they, guys? My wife's like. Disease. Fell into a freezer somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, I'm does that count? That, that doesn't cost Fucking anything. Han Solo and Carbonite counts as one, technically. Okay, okay, okay. I'm gonna guess. And here's my moonshot. I'm guessing 1,200 people are presently cryogenically frozen in the United States of America. Thank you, Cody. This is a fun question. Jason is going 1,200. Alrighty, locking it in. Doing some final tabulations, uh, but just. To get uh, ahead of it here, sorry, I don't. I have no idea what's going. I think some people are street Ooh, racing outside of my red. place, so I'm gonna have to go down and watch once we're done it's recording. The race here. Um, uh, to uh, uh, hopefully, and also simultaneously, hopefully not. Uh, I'll just get ahead of it and say thank you. And remember, the try is out there. Don't let anybody tell you differently. Uh, the uh, as of 2014. About uh, the most recent figure we could find. As of 2014, about 250 bodies had been cryopreserved in the United States. So here's how it plays out. Um, Harry got three points for that question, paired with the one point he got earlier in the game that puts him at four. Jason was next closest with two. Add two to that from the previous rounds. He's at four. Uh, Aaron was furthest away at one, but he banked enough points earlier in the game. He comes out on top with five. Did you consider uh, so still get that again, one? I forgot yeah. about that. Uh, can can yeah. I call into question the point system? I guess 1,200. Is that not further from 250 than than one? Huh? He guessed... So he guessed 50,000. 50, oh, my God. Did I miss that you fucking guessed 50,000? Was I really not paying attention? I thought there was like some... I remember reading some story about some facility where they're, they're doing this, and they're just like... You know, it's basically a scam. That there's no... Oh, how oh. do you even assure that? And so I was like, I bet it. There's a lot of people that just shoving that fucking thing. You know, it's fucking America. <laughs> it's like, yeah. What do you got to lose? <laughs> just trip them on the way. Literally, what do you have to lose? What do you got to lose, it? dude? Sure. Anyway, if they're like, hey, here's two hundred thousand bucks. You know, if I'm like, what rich if you? As hell, it's like, what yeah, if you hey, were unfrozen fuck? like two hundred thousand years from this. now, but you were still just like an eighty-five year old man, so you just were alive for like another year. Like in, oh, yeah, in like, like yeah, the year twenty thousand, they're just like, oh yeah. well. I mean, like you're still gonna die. You right? can't breathe the air, yeah. so you just collapse. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, my apologies. I thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I, I got a pop off platform. Everybody kind of shared in that one, but that that is that is the game. I, close, closely yep. fought. Aaron benefited from the sportsman's bonus. Yep. Is now I'm in my, now I'm in my head about mm-hmm. it. The try is out there. Would try love is out there be better? I'm. I don't. I, the pod I, is out there. You know, maybe go more generic. He always pod. works try or love. I usually go mad libs yeah. with it, where I yeah, right, where I yeah. usually do that hacky bullshit. It could you just know, be an offer. Uh, Anyways, the pop the pop is is yours. I'll I'll, I'll it's a rebuilding my, season. I'll dim my mic. Look, I'll, it is much like the Red Sox. Look, I'll, yeah, I'll just say I think it's been a little bit. You know, the uh, rulers back sort of situation here. Um, you know, yeah. Great leaders uh, don't talk so, about uh, watch sports. What a, kids. What a pop! Yep. Yeah, there you okay, go. yeah, pretty good pop. I take it back. Uh, Harry, do you remember that episode of the X Files? We're, we're finishing season one now. I think it's at the end of season one where Deep Throat dies and he says, "Trust no one." At the yeah. beginning, at the beginning of that episode, in the intro 
credits. Normally it says the truth is out there. It says trust no one. It says trust no one. It's hype as hell, dude. When that happened, Sky and I were like the pointing guys. Yeah, because we're like, did you see that shit? It changed. It was trust no one. Oh, you've got so much good coming, buddy. Oh, man, I'm so excited for you to watch season two. Because it fucking rocks, dude. It's the best show. No, sure, but it feels like just a large amount of like it's, everything's congregated. It is dangerous. Know? Like one episode of the X-Files is a gateway drug to like the whole series of the X-Files. I watched, we watched sure. like five or six episodes on um, Freevee or one of those dumbass streaming services mm-hmm. before we got upset with the commercial yeah. breaks and the volume levels between them and just bought the whole thing on Blu-ray oh, yeah. and we're just churning. We're, we're only starting season two now, but we're at a good clip in fall here when the weather's getting bad. Anyway. What's the total? That, what's the investment here? How many seasons we talk? How many episodes per season? There are 11 season? seasons oh, yeah. spending like 35 years. I will not be watching this mean, the X-Files. <laughs> does this mean you finished Columbo, Jason? Or no, is that, that taking is, that is, uh, that is, uh, okay. Sky and I Columbo. can justify X-Files together. Right. She is less into Columbo okay. than she is X-Files. So we're doing that together. I'm watching Columbo on my own. I'm still only four or five episodes in and they're like an hour and 20 each. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to justify an episode of X-Files before bed. Right, right. Thank you, though, for checking in. Uh, Columbo Watch, I don't see it I don't see it finalizing in 2023, to, but it's Columbo kind of seems like more one of those shows that you just pop on a random episode when you feel like it and mm-hmm. you have a delightful time. I don't know that I would actually like it. Going through the entirety of Columbo episode by episode sounds kind of torturous to me. Not it gonna might lie. be. Right now, it's it's all bangers, like no misses. What my first banger will have me feeling how you're feeling. Or excuse me, my first non-banger will have me feeling how you're feeling. Where it's like maybe I should just like look up a list of the best episodes and go down, you know. Uh, but for right now, uh, X Files with Colum- with a side of Columbo. X Files famously never had a single bad episode, so you're in I've, for a, a great ride. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much, listener, for listening to Try Love. Uh, check us out on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. Go back in the feed, find a movie you've seen, uh, and tell us about it. Get in touch with us at Try Love Podcast or at Try Love Podcast at gmail.com. Find the Trilon at Trilon.org. Check out their calendar, see a movie there, talk to us about the movie you saw there. Uh, find me on Twitter, or I guess I'll also Blue Sky now, I keep forgetting, at Nintendo Doofus. My name is Jason. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Yes, thank you. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Blue Sky at Cody Narvison uh, and on Twitter at uh, Cody underscore BH. I'm kind of in my head about whether I should align the handles across socials, but um, that uh, the truth is not out there. The try is not out there. Excuse me. I don't know the answer to that just yet. That is a spooky unsolved mystery. That's my Roman Empire, etc. Take it away, Harry. Cody's self-conscious now ever since I called him Cody Butthole. Um, yeah, uh, th- thanks no. for listening. Um, Jason mentioned it already, but we love having guests. Um, just to shout that out, uh, come on the pod. Anybody who's listening, I'm pretty sure everybody who's listening to this has been on the pod. Uh, but you can come on the pod again. Uh, we'd love to have you. Um, you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. Aaron on Blue Sky at Arby Please. Cody's Noties. God. <sighs> I need to collect myself. (laughs) (laughs) Just drink a cool crisp Sprite. (sighs) Anyways. Waiting a million years. Just for us. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Thank <laughs> you.